What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. Today, we'll celebrate pop culture, specifically K-pop culture, with an inside look at the making of a girl band in the book K-Pop Confidential, written by our guest author, Stephen Lee, and published by Scholastic. And personally, I'll celebrate the freedom I had to eat potato chips while growing up. That will become evident as we get into this. Welcome, (laughs) Stefan. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Diane. It's great to be here. I I want to say I I feel that I am going to get tripped up at some points that I hope you'll correct me in terms of understanding K-pop and Korean culture, but I'm going to dive right in. Okay. Um, It's, uh, and I really just love to be enlightened at any, at any foot along the way. But to me, the contrast was stark uh, in K-pop confidential. The Korean culture is built, like so many cultures around the world, um, on food delicacies that are lovingly prepared by (laughs) our mothers and served to families as a gesture of love and togetherness. Yet K-pop, the idol industry um, for young girls in music, young boys in music, requires that these young girls, as young as 10 aged, deny themselves this uh, wonderful um, sharing of food in favor of rigid mm-hmm. menus of sweet potatoes and salads, things to keep them slim and burn off calories. They're sequestered from their families, a very family-oriented culture, deprived of this familiar support. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if you might comment, um, what does this do to the fabric of culture and how has it changed family life in South Korea? That's such a great observation, Diane, especially starting off with food, because it's so central to my life, both as an American and a Korean and a Korean-American, as it is for basically every culture. Um, Korea was a very impoverished country until very, very recently, and um, it it's a small country in size, so it didn't ha- it doesn't have very many natural resources. So for a lot of Korea's history, um, Koreans ate like very kind of cheap, low nu- nutrient nutrient poor foods. Um, mm-hmm. So when that kind of changed, and you know um, Korea advanced, and there was more access to all sorts of different types of food. Food just became so important. Growing up in America, but having um, parents who were born in Korea who remembered having their food rationed um, due to shortages, like, they would never, ever, they wouldn't understand the concept of dieting. (laughs) You know, they wouldn't. Right. um, It was such a value for us to eat as much as possible, as much good food, lots of meats, lots of variety. And um, you're so right in that K-pop is not Korean culture. It's a completely separate 
I mean, it's not completely separate because it's informed by Korean elements of Korean culture, but K-pop culture is not Korean culture at large. Um, so it does feel kind of reversed of like so many values that Korea, you know, most Koreans hold dear. <laughs> um, but yeah, like uh, I think that's because K-pop is an important export for Korea. Um, yes. And these people, these kids who are chosen for to become stars or try to become stars, they're almost making a sacrifice for their country because they're, they want to represent the country in a very important way um, to the rest of the world. So they do sacrifice certain things, including getting to eat what they want. Um, mm -hmm. So it is a lot of pressure and food is a big, big driver of that pressure. And that's something that I really wanted to highlight in the book as well. Well, you did an excellent job of it, and I can see that there's a double-edged sword to this. Thank you for contextualizing this in terms of Korea's um, impoverishment. Um, for a little background for our listeners, K-pop idols are groups and artists formed by various entertainment companies that create catchy Korean popular music and target younger audience. <laughs> The, mu the audiences, the music formed um, um, from a group of people who are particularly talented, at least one of the following genres, singing, rapping, and dancing. And the idols often entertain, often enter the entertainment company in their teens and then train mm -hmm. hard for years in these areas of singing, rapping, dancing, and foreign languages. And then if they are lucky enough and talented enough, by the end of their teens, they'll be picked for an idol group. And an example of this would be size uh, Gangnam Style um, and lots and mm -hmm. lots and lots of others. But I, I'd love to for you to to speak to this um, because it is a meaningful export. It is a meaningful phenomenon. Um, and as you mm -hmm. write in your book, it's an inspiration to millions all around the world. How do we resolve this double-edged sword of the cost and the price that we pay um, to have this kind of music? Yeah, that's... Uh that's really the conflict that I was wrestling with, with the whole book um, is that I didn't want this book to be an expose, just an expose of the dark sides of K-pop um, because I do really respect it. And I do know the importance of it. Um, but at the individual level, it can be such a horrible experience. Um, to give up your entire childhood for a very, very slim chance at being able to debut in an actual group um, is really, it can be very psychologically damaging. Um, the culture of K-pop can be pretty different from Hollywood in that um, a lot of the kids who enter K-pop, a lot of them are incredibly passionate about music and completely chose to pursue it themselves. But in a way, a lot of it's set up a bit differently because even if you don't display huge amounts of talent um, as a child in Korea, um, I think the philosophy is that if you practice enough, like thousands and thousands and thousands of hours at anything, you can 
and you're willing to work harder than everyone else, you can be good enough to um, uh, enter one of these groups. And the difficulty level is very high. If you've ever seen a K-pop music video, the choreography is much more complicated than anything you ever see in American pop music. And uh, so I do think that, you know, the messages of K-pop can be really, really positive, but there is a negative side. But I also wanted to make sure that I didn't paint K-pop as a uniquely awful industry because I think the issues around in Hollywood and basically every entertainment industry around the world, there are always going to be tons of issues and Korea, Korean entertainment just has some very specific ones, but um, I wouldn't say that they are any worse than Hollywood or any other place. Um, Right. So it really is difficult because I think there, I think that, the problem tends to be when young people have dreams, they are willing to sacrifice so much and bend themselves to fit the rules of older people. Usually Um, instead of kind of tapping into their authentic messages they want to share or what's actually going on within them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that can be resolved around the world. And that isn't specific just to K-pop. I think that is a beautiful sense of resolution. And in the book, we trace the life of Candace. Um, I thought it was mm-hmm. fantastically interesting that Candace is a female. And I think this arose mm-hmm. out of your being drawn to, to girl bands and listening to girl bands. I, I also mm-hmm. just um, love how she internally wrestled with the idea of being an idol versus being an artist. She herself had the ability... Mm-hmm to write songs in a beautiful way. And as you say, this commodification is hardly unique. Look at the modeling industry. Mm-hmm. Look, look at Jennifer right. Lawrence being <laughs> discovered at 13 in Rockefeller Center by a talent scout, you know, um, and, right. you know, Hollywood as well. So I do think there is that kind of cautionary tale to the malleability of teenage sensibilities, but on the other hand, there may be a way through it if there are enough role models who do discover authentic messages and deliver them um, in as a layer to to their music. Talk to us about writing in the first person as a girl, how you came to that, and mm-hmm. and also how you researched the book. It felt like you were embedded, literally embedded, in K-pop. <laughs> you have a, a background in, in journalism, and you have a, a master's from the New School. I mean, clearly, you're an extraordinarily talented writer, but how did you get so um, internalized or inhabiting this character that's quite different from yourself? Oh, thank you so much. Um, well, writing as a teenage girl was actually really, really natural to me. Um, when I, you know, had the idea to write a young adult novel set in um, the K-pop world, I never, ever considered writing from the point of view of a boy. <laughs> I think it's just my natural interest. And, you know, I do... Identify as male. <laughs> if I put my pronouns on Twitter, I would say he him. But mm-hmm. I also just don't think that the way people think and the way people speak, which is you know basically what 
writing in first person is, is really always all that different um, down gender lines. So mm-hmm. I think my sensibility of I have always gravitated towards um, stories by and about female characters. Um, I've always been drawn to female voices, literally. Um, I love pop music and I always have, and I've always um, almost listened to female singers exclusively. Um, so it was very, very natural to um, write as a uh, young woman. Um, I have also been writing another book that's written from the point of view of a boy, completely different, not involved with K-pop at all. And the voices are different, but they're not different because one's a male and one's a female. They're just different individuals. Um, so it, it was actually pretty natural to me. And, you know, I've had some questions about like, Oh, why did you want to write from the point of view of a girl or a girl would never say this or that. Whereas other people, other women will come up to me and say, yes, girls do think that, (laughs) you know, so it's all a matter of, um, individual experience. And as far as Mm -hmm. research goes, um, in making Candace's, uh, journey feel realistic and relatable. Um, I did do definitely a lot of research into K-pop and the Korean entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. I was sent by Entertainment Weekly, where I worked for seven years as a writer and editor. Um, I, they sent me to Korea for three weeks to report a story that actually never ran, <laughs> that I never mm-hmm. ended up writing, um, because we had an editor switch over literally while I was flying back from Korea <laughs> after doing all my research. Oh. Um, but... Uh, we, uh, in addition to all that research, um, there actually isn't that much that's known about the K-pop trainee process. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of it is really under tight NDAs. Um, K-pop idols don't really talk about their, uh, trainee days in all its gory detail. (laughs) So is that because I, they're, is, uh, sorry, sorry, is that, is that then because, Stefan, they are bound not to, or they, do they sign confidentiality agreements? How is it that they don't speak um, about the experience? Yeah, I think once they debut, usually what they, what idols say in public is really quite controlled and choreographed. Mm-hmm. Um and there are former trainees who do speak out about their experiences, but there aren't that many of them. And a lot of them um, don't share everything about it. Um, I also think that the culture in Korea is, isn't as confessional as um, the West mm-hmm. maybe or America maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that is held kind of, um, off limits and we don't get as in depth about the trainee experience, although there are always lots of rumors and there's, there is kind of a mythology about K-pop trainee programs. Um, I always tell people that it's kind of the closest thing to the hunger games Mm -hmm. in real life as you can get (laughs) because they're all these young people. They're training very hard. 
um, for a very, very, very slim shot at success, and they put everything, their whole lives into it. Um, and it's incredibly, incredibly competitive and high pressure and very public um, and broadcast to the whole world. So um, it, it's really, it really is just like an incredibly extreme atmosphere. But there isn't that much known about the day-to-day. So mm-hmm. um, I, I did use a lot of my imagination. And I also thought, just put my, I tried to think of it universally. As in, mm-hmm. okay, what would someone think about when they were going to sleep at, at night if they were in a training program? What, what emotions would they have? What thoughts would they have? And I actually ended up using a lot of um, research into other types of extreme competition that young people are put into, such as uh-huh. um, elite gymnastics or yes. um, even cheer- cheerleading in Texas. You know? mm-hmm. so, yes. Um, uh, yeah. So um, it's interesting because the, I know a, um, a former trainee at a K-pop program, a friend of mine, who I will not name, and they actually said, like, oh, my God, like, how did you know about this one detail? Um, And it's a very specific detail in the book about um, how at the at Candace's uh, uh, trainee headquarters in Korea, um, the cafeteria is divided among boys and girls by a glass wall. And Candace thinks that um, that was done on purpose so that girls would eat less if they, if they knew they were being watched by boys. Yes. And I completely made that up. I, I just thought it kind of made sense with the culture and just the rigidity and also the kind of gender, um, you know, double standards Mm -hmm. in the industry. And this person actually said, that's exactly what they did. And I was like, I completely made that up just based on, what I would think emotionally might happen. And um, so I really think that by being specific, you actually become universal. So I think that That's right. any, anyone who's ever been in a very competitive situation as a young person can actually relate to this very specific story. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's a very visible microcosm, um, visible in the sense that it's structured and spelled out. But less articulated is the fact that we're all kind of in these competitions. We just don't really know about it. You know, it's kind of, um, you know, we're training hard, we're doing everything we can, we're polishing our uh, our, ourselves in terms of the way we look, feel, act, think, eat. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of um, difference. It, got, it does work on a continuum and there is extremes. If we want to look at, you know, Miley Cyrus or Britney Spears, you can't say these people are not packaged, you know, to within an inch of their life. Exactly. Um, so exactly. I, I think I think that's very interesting that this is kind of merely an articulated microcosm of this intensity. Um, and I love that yeah. you um, allude to the non-binary nature of female and male. I really think you captured Candace and um, quite quite authentically, actually, having been a young girl. Um, we're going to need to <laughs> pause for a break now. But when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the things that are a little less flexible, some of the knee-jerk reactions to Korean culture, like sacrificing and giving up for the common good, 
versus individual gain mm-hmm. as we do here in the West. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Stephen Lee on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Stefan Lee, author of K-Pop Confidential. It's a great young adult uh, novel. I enjoyed reading it myself, fell in love with Candace, felt her, um, <clears throat> her desires to triumph. Um, she, she does, uh, Stefan, she, she does actually... Um, have moments where she not only is expected to sacrifice for the common good of her girl group, she's in group two, mm-hmm. um, but she she does so with the deference and supplicants that is a little foreign to us in America. Um, she endures mm-hmm. a kind of hazing ritual um, in the dorm room that, you know, is pretty unpleasant because there's garbage in her bunk bed. <laughs> Um, you know, there's, yeah. there's all kinds of stuff and, you know, like we won't, you know, give spoiler alerts, but the guitar becomes involved and, you know, there's a lot of personal yeah. da- damage and, and sacrifice and yet she soldiers on. Um, I wondered mm-hmm. if, um, you know, and, and I know she has this incredible family background with Uma, her mother, um, enormously great, you know, traditions and bonding um, and I wondered how that helped her, and also whether you can comment on, um, in general terms, or if that's appropriate, you know, is Korean culture simply more willing to acquiesce to conformity for the sake of the common good versus individual mm-hmm. gain, if you will? Yes, I love this question. Um No, I think what you're saying is very true and gets to the heart of a lot of the conflict that Candace feels internally. And I think that a lot of um, Korean Americans or, um, you know, people of Korean descent who don't live in Korea or weren't born in Korea feel all the time Mm -hmm. um, in that she's a bit foreign in America as a Korean American, as a minority, but she's even more foreign when she goes to Korea for the first time in her life to train um, mm-hmm. 
And she realizes just how different she is from these people who do look more like her um, than her friends at home. Um, And she has to walk this line because um, she has to decide how much of speaking out and speaking her mind is actually just cultural unawareness in Korea. Because I do think that um, in general... Um, you know, speaking your truth or speaking, saying the first thing that comes to your head is more valued in America than it is in Korea, for sure. So um, there are things that she disagrees with that she sees um, in the K-pop headquarters where she's training and living. Um, And she also has to respect the hierarchy a bit because Um, In Korean culture, you do defer to people who are older than you, Um, way more, even if they're only a year older or so. um, The way you speak to someone who's older than you is completely different from the way you speak to someone who's even a year younger than you. You also have to weigh how long someone's been at a company. So um, in Korean corporate culture, you, you have to go by who's senior to you, who's been at the company longer than you in addition to worrying about who's older than you. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, there's a lot that she has to juggle um, when she's at this company. Um, so when the other girls are hazing her, it's like, are they just cruel or is this almost just what you have to go through? Um, so um, she has to balance that really well. Um And I think that her, what she doesn't realize at the beginning of the book is that the way that she was raised by her Korean mother um, actually has prepared her really well um, Mm -hmm. because she has, she has been raised in a fairly typical Korean American immigrant way in that um, academics are prized, um, her interest in singing and songwriting is definitely not really prized by her parents because who don't really trust it as a mm-hmm. practical means of getting ahead in America. So um, she, she does know that she's extremely loved, but maybe her passions aren't very valued by her parents um, and her actual desires aren't really listened to. Um, so when her parents do manage, do end up, allowing her to go to Korea to pursue becoming a K-pop star, which is very a big surprise to them as well. Um, and it's also a surprise to Candace that she had the courage to assert this because she's always been a kind of go-along type of person. Um, she knows at least that she is always loved. So she has this well of unconditional love from her upbringing, whereas any sort of praise or love, if you can call it that, that she finds in the um, K-pop facility is so conditional. You know, it's all about how well you perform, how you behave, um, Mm -hmm. how well you conform to exactly what they want. So um, she really has to dig dig deep into that well of self-worth that she's kind of built up through her whole life when she does end up speaking up about what's right and what she really wants. I felt like the whole arc of the story was hinging on that, that she had in herself um, a sense of self-worth of 
uh, you know, Uma saying, you're always enough just as you are. Where are these poor girls? And, you know, you know, this mm-hmm. is where, again, I don't want to be patronizing, but these poor girls who, you know, through this objectification process, believe that only the, their worth only comes from how well they can perform. So that, you know, yeah. the, the, there is no center, right? There's no center to hold it all together. And there's no center to speak from. So they're much mm-hmm. more, um, they're much more willing to compromise and even give up um, whatever budding identities they had in order to to accomplish this success in this realm. But ironically, it cheapens it because, you know, because in the end, mm-hmm. and Candace, uh, obviously, she she is an original voice. She comes across mm-hmm. as a, in a stronger way. Um, and I, I really, I thought to myself, this is really almost, you'd really lose it um, if you didn't have that. Uh, so Candace, Candace, so that for listeners, I mean, I did love this aspect as well, that, you know, Candace finally convinces her family to let her go because it'll make great material for a college essay since, since their value <laughs> is, is, um, is, is academics. And, and for those of us that are first-generation immigrants, it's always about, you know, assimilation and, you know, fitting right. in and, and getting ahead in America. It's it's all, you know, yeah. prescribed in a different way and in a kind of, you know, performance way, but but with the love at the center, which is what I think um, you described beautifully. Talk to us a little bit about this idea. I mean, I, I think this is where the subtlety comes in in the book, too. Um, it's not an expose, as you say. It's not black and white. And I think it then mm-hmm. urges us to introspect, to ask ourselves, where are our feelings about um, identity coming from as Westerners? You know, like, can these people be developing an, a true identity? Are they attaining an identity through a sense of belonging to a K-pop culture? Um, I, I yeah. want to, yeah, and I, I want to ask you about the idea of exploring K-pop culture through Candace's lens, instead of mm-hmm. piling the information onto us in an authoritarian way, we discover it along with Candace in the in the voyage. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you you you've then blended your journalistic career with a novel writing career. I wondered how they inform one another. How you were drawn to tell the story through a singular um, identity um, as opposed to an, ex- an expose. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Diane, I feel like you've kind of read my mind <laughs> because <laughs> this, that is such what I've really, um, what I was grappling with even as I was writing the book um, and thinking about my own experience, even though I've never been a teenage girl <laughs> and I've never been um, a K-pop, trainee or idol um, or even a singer or dancer. <laughs> so um, no, it's very, it, I, I do think that in my own career, being a writer is what I always wanted to do and writing. And I was always passionate about film and TV and basically any form of escape. So mm-hmm. um, I, I did do the whole 
um, AP track myself, and I went to Duke University. Um, and in a way, becoming a an entertainment journalist, even though that's not really practical at all, it felt like a practical way to do some version of my dream, mm-hmm. um, which was always to create um, pop culture. Um, so writing about pop culture felt like a really great dream for a very long time, and it's something I put everything into um, and really enjoyed. But at a certain point, I knew that it was kind of the second best dream or the second best version of my dream. And in a way, the second best is actually more dangerous than, you know, your 10th choice in career because it feels almost good enough. (laughs) So you can kind of get trapped in it for a very long time. So um, I actually left Entertainment Weekly, which was such a great dream job for such a long time, to, and I now currently have one foot in editorial and one foot in marketing, actually. I do branded content now, which I write articles like I used to, but they're always sponsored by <laughs> um, a brand or a company. And um, even though that's not as cool as what I was doing before, it's actually a nice separation. I don't have my ego wrapped up in what I do during the day. So Mm -hmm. when I close the laptop or when I used to leave the office, um, it's over and I can focus on writing. And I think that's, um, I wanted to put into Candace that realization a bit earlier, you know, at the age of 15, 16, (laughs) that um, maybe what she was doing um, would keep her content enough but she does have this desire to blow up her whole life and do something completely different, um, really surprise people. Um, and that's also why she, once she actually gets to Korea and gets to the um, training facility, she actually lies to her family and covers up what's happening inside so she can keep doing it, even though it is making her kind of miserable on some level. She's also having the best time of her life as well and feeling like she's finally reached her dream um, or is very close or is on the cusp of it. So she will find ways to actually continue some of the suffering. And I think that's very relatable. I feel like I've done that myself when there's something I really want to do. Even though I know that's not always fun, I will actually convince myself that it's the only way or um, the cost of doing business. So um, that's also something that she really has to weigh and that I've had to weigh in my actual life as well. Well, it's personal and um, we are collaborators in our own, um, you know, being subjected um, and whether or not we uh, are aware of it at the time, we undergo a lot of self-deception, and then we perpetrate it on others <laughs> to 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 keep yeah. the whole to keep the whole thing going. And I love this idea of the second best. You know, you you're you're bolstering it up, right? You're you're trying to manufacture right. it into something that ultimately it's not it's not sustainable. 
And, um, you know, Candace is just, as you say, on the cusp of that. And so we're on a sort of cliffhanger ledge along with her. She does lie. She lies to Uma, her beloved mother. And, of course, Uma, being a mother, knows something's all wrong. Look at the color. Look at her skin. Look at her eyes. Look at the way she meets your eyes. Um, you know, look at, the, look at how her body's changed. Um, and, right. you know. She hides, you know, she, Candace hides her bruises, her blisters, her bloody feet, you know, all, all of the, all of the impacts of this, of this intensive training. But I wondered about this instinct to, to move in that direction, like that intensity to just be kind of ruthless, um, even mm-hmm. though you sacrifice all the psychic space between you and your beloved mother, um, I just, I, I found that to be um, powerful, um, very relatable, mm-hmm. that when you are on a trajectory, you just have to give up certain, <laughs> certain scruples uh, <laughs> in order, to, right. in order to, to keep it all going. Um, and I, I wondered, right. you know, how that fracture felt um, with the family, if it's something that you've ever experienced as well. I mean, you're an author. You don't have to comment on yeah. that if you, if you don't want. But does it create no. a schism yeah. at all? Yes. I think that's really something that almost any creative person has to face in some form or another. And I do think that it can be even more pronounced when you are, you know, a first-generation immigrant because there is so much pressure to that and so much expectation to that. And her, I actually made Candace's parents um, sort of thwarted creatives as well. They do have a music background, but it actually did blow up in their faces. Um, And especially when they moved to America, they realized, oh, we have to do things that are very practical in order to survive. And what I think is interesting and that I sort of, I didn't state outright, but I wove into the book, is that actually it's funny because the product of successful, you know, assimilation or successful immigration is that the children of the ones who made the move kind of have to become a little bit foreign to their parents, you know? Um, And there does have to be a bit of a separation because that's actually progress, but it doesn't feel like it. It feels like rebellion. But mm-hmm. um, Candace does feel that she has some freedom to take risks and um, do something very bold and unexpected, whereas her parents did not have that luxury because they were the ones who had to lay the groundwork. Um, so the things that the parents actually worked for, which is giving their kids freedom, giving them choices, giving them Um, the space to make some mistakes is exactly what Candace is trying to enjoy, but it feels like disrespect and feels like rebellion. And I think that's something that I also had to go through with my parents as well, because, you know, I think they would have loved for me to be, for some, whatever reason, my mom always thought I would make a really great judge. (laughs) And so for her, being being a judge is extreme like it's the pinnacle of respectability or just why would anyone not want to be like you know a Ruth Bader Ginsburg or (laughs) something like that I don't know (laughs) 
<laughs> but um, I'm just like, but she, I think if she really thought about it, she would know that my personality was uniquely horrible for that kind of life. I'm indecisive. I, I like to be a little silly. I like to kind of buck rules when I, when I can get away with it. So mm-hmm. she should know, she should have known very clearly that, that that would be horrible for me, but it just seems like such a path to respectability. And there are steps that you can take to get there that are very prescribed. So, um, but now I think she really sees that like my path is exactly what I should have been doing. And it's something that she realizes that she wished that she could have been a bit more like me. Yes. But, um, yes. So uh, yeah, it's like kind of a reversal that I think is a really healthy thing, but it does lead to a lot of drama. <laughs> right. When it's, when it's happening, when the paradigm shift is happening <clears throat> from the expectation to the reality, that's one of Candace's songs too. Um, yeah. I really did. I did become a, a, a stan of hers. Um, <clears throat> interesting though, that this confluence of, you know, who you are outerly and innerly can, can converge. I, we need to take a break, but I do really love to think about this idea of guilt. The, role of it and the role of, um, yeah, playing with your identity a bit and how you can actually go about finding it um, through an experience Mm -hmm. like this where you're actually shedding many skins to find it. We're speaking with Stephen Lee, author of K-Pop Confidential. Don't go away. When we come back, I'm going to give you some lyrics of Candace's song, my very favorite one, from K-Pop Confidential. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're on the fine line between cult and culture, how these entities form, how they live and coexist with one another. And, you know, I think you brought up a great example, Stefan Lee, when you mentioned extreme gymnastics and what an intensive lifestyle that is. 
um, you know, we look at it from the outside and we appreciate the performance. We congratulate the, the athletes, um, you know, and then it emerges what they've actually gone through um, to get to that place. And you kind of, you know, you, you have to kind of almost dissociate in order to be part of it. Because again, like with Candace in K-Pop Confidential, the great YIA novel that you wrote, she can't have a boyfriend. They've got the gender and <laughs> the glass gender wall in the cafeteria where the girls feel so self-conscious as adolescents do <laughs> to, to not eat one more um, piece of celery um, to, you know, because the boys might be looking, but they're so tantalizingly near yet so far. Um, they're right. not. They're not allowed to associate, and and I understand that that also happens in in gymnastics. It used to be quite a topic for Olympians as well. So I mean, these kinds of um, paradigms exist in different cultures and different um, areas of um, you know professionalism. I I did want to talk about another knife blade edge that I really loved when Candace um well she got the she she got the opportunity to meet her male idol one J and mm-hmm. he he was kind enough to nurture her music her songwriting talent she went ahead and followed his advice to scribble, even though she was exhausted at the end of the day. And one of her songs is this. If you don't mind, I'm going to read it. It's my favorite. The Yeo Wu song, which you'll correct my <laughs> yeah. pronunciation. Um, it goes like this. When I'm polite, you say I'm not a warrior. When I'm forward, you say I'm not a lady. But I'm neither. I'm a Yeo Wu. I'm sweet when I need to be, fierce when I need to be. Don't underestimate me. I'll turn your traps back on you. Because I'm a Yeyawu. That's right. Yeyawu da. And so speak to us about this creature, this mythic creature that you, know, you materialized <laughs> for her and how that um, related to her experience. Yes. So Yeyawu actually means wolf. Um, actually, fox in Korean. And I've heard it used in some dramas um, almost as kind of a compliment, but kind of not. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of the equivalent of saying someone's a she-wolf almost. It's like a cunning woman. Um, and when it's used as a compliment, it's kind of like, oh, you're smart, you're wily, you, you can figure things out. And then when it's negative, it's almost the equivalent of saying the B word, you know? Uh Um, So, but um, Candace gets called Yowu in this very ambiguous way by the CEO of the K-pop company after she does, after she's kind of cornered into sort of throwing a member of her team under the bus, one of her biggest competition. And, Mm -hmm. uh, she has very complicated feelings about this afterwards and kind of digs into it. And it's interesting because there is a big feminist movement going on in Korea. Um, and it looks slightly different from what it looks like in America, but in America, I think right now it's very popular to call yourself a feminist and it's wide, widely more accepted than it used to be. 
Um, and a lot of the negative connotations are, at least in some areas of the country, falling away. Um, mm-hmm. And people are very willing to call themselves that. Whereas that's a bit, still a bit more complicated and still maybe a smaller minority in Korea. So this is her sort of embracing this negative, sort of negative word and making it a positive, which I think is sort of a natural thing for any, you know, underprivileged type of person to do, um, Mm -hmm. to take on that identity and wear it proudly. So that's a moment for Candace, even though she's still unsure at the time that she writes that song, um, she actually performs that song when she should be performing a different one. Um, and she does it in the spur of the moment. And that's just a sort of edging towards being more outspoken and being more of an authentic artist, not just as a songwriter, but as a person and facing that honesty that's within her and actually letting it out, which takes a lot of courage, of course. And that's something that she edges towards throughout the whole book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. She walks through a door almost, or a series of doors, where she has the option to remain contained, to submerge herself. Mm-hmm. And she is that hybrid. She has a little bit of American in her. Um, she also knows that her parents, you know, had incredible music training, um, wound up as the, you know, uber popular um, Korean deli operators, and she may be vicariously, as you alluded before, wants to take that step of differentiating, going towards something Mm -hmm. as opposed to holding back. Um, And I I think it also is brilliant. um, It's a brilliant metaphor also in the sense that it's so instinctual. It's so, yeah, the the cunning of the fox. She's inching along instinctively um, and she's going along in fits and starts. One of the things that does um, befall her is the sense of guilt because schadenfreude, right? To to borrow from a completely different culture, schadenfreude, the, the way she is resented for getting ahead, for being chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two questions for you, <laughs> but you're very good at yeah. tracking. I love that you can do that. Um, is that, <laughs> you, you know, is that um, first the guilt and is there such a thing mm-hmm. as Korean guilt the way there is like, you know, Jewish mm-hmm. guilt or Catholic guilt or Irish guilt, or is there such a thing? And then the second part of the question is, what happens to these poor souls who, like, are not chosen? What if you're not mm-hmm. chosen and then you feel not only, you know, guilt, but shame and failure? Does that spin off to, you know, a kind of subculture of people who have, like, declared themselves losers. I mean, I don't know. That's a very Americanized <laughs> version of things and very linear. No, Maybe it's not like that at all. I think that's, yeah, no, I think that's very, very much the case. I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think these two questions are very well paired because, well, I think there is a sense of guilt about, and also one thing that I wanted to kind of explore, which I don't think is talked about very much is a sense of embarrassment. I think it is embarrassing to tell people exactly what you want to do um, because mm-hmm. by saying that you want something, you're really just showing people exactly who you are on the inside or who you have been for a very long time, but haven't made very clear. Um, 
And that's something that I felt growing up just because I thought of myself as very ner- uh, kind of a nerdy, shy Asian kid. I thought I should do nerdy, shy Asian kid types of things. Although on the inside, I felt very different from that. Um, and it took a much longer time for me than it did for Candace to start inching towards declaring that because it's embarrassing to say what you want to do, especially if that's not how people see you. Um, and I think paired with that embarrassment is paired with guilt. Um, and this is something that I also explore with Candace getting the yes from her parents, which is, which she saw as almost impossible, but, um, she actually gets the yes a lot faster than she thinks she will um, to go and become a K-pop trainee um, is that getting the yes is very scary. Yes. It's almost easier to, it's almost easier to lose because for instance, so even though these kids put their whole lives into training for this very, very narrow chance, it's actually scarier to win, to be one of the few chosen ones, because then you actually have to follow through. And if you fail, it's also hugely devastating and you have to put your, put the pieces of your life back together, but at least you get to move forward kind of anonymously. Um, And you don't have to shoulder that burden of winning. (laughs) Um, And um, I think that, I think what is the case in Korea, maybe more starkly than America, is, for instance, um, the system of getting the college in Korea is extremely brutal. Um, there's a t- nationwide test that's similar to the SAT, but it's even harder. It's an all-day thing. Um, the whole country kind of shuts down for those two days because they want to make sure that those kids you know, get to the testing place on time. It's incredibly, incredibly important to their college um, acceptances. And that basically dictates what kind of job you get. And that's the case in America to an extent, but it's much more stark in Korea. Um, Mm -hmm. And the people who don't do well in that, like, what do they do? They have to do something else. And they have to maybe... um, embark on a lifelong long journey to find some sort of self-worth outside of that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's also the case with people who do win. The, the few who do get, it, get that thing that everybody seems to want, um, I think they have to embark on that journey anyway, but maybe they embark on it later. <laughs> right. Um, because there's that illusion that you got everything that you're supposed to in life. So... Um, you're supposed yeah, to. Mm-hmm. I think we're all kind of in the same boat in, at the end of the day. Yeah, that's the, that's the universality of this book, K-Pop Confidential. And it really um, is somebody, you know, something that anyone could read and kind of uh, tune into, not just as a piece of escape, but as a way to tune into the voyage that we're on in life. I, I have to thank you very much, Stephen Lee. We're out of time, but I have enjoyed our yeah. conversation very, very much. Oh, thank you so much, Diane. Your questions were really, really incredible. And thank you for that compliment, because that is something I've kind of run up against with this book being out in the world, is that just the way that, you know, the title K-pop Confidential, people think, oh, I'm not a K-pop fan, so I won't enjoy this. But there is so much more there. And I really hope that people continue to discover the book and the sequel coming out in April 2022. So uh, thank you so much for this time. 
Lovely. I'm glad to hear there is one. I want to read more from K- from Candace. Um, I, I just have to say, I just, yeah, this idea of asking for something, vulnerability, what it creates. Stefan Lee has a Twitter handle and a um, an, an Instagram account, S-T-E-P-E-P-H-A-N, and Twitter is Stefan M. Lee. You can find K-pop Confidential wherever books are sold. We're delighted to have you. We thank you. And um, we thank that our our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, and uh, most of all, um, to you, our listeners, our um, Robert Cialino, our producer, but most of all to you, our listeners. Sorry, I'm just um, drifting here for a moment, but the noon whistle's blowing. And um, I just want to say thank you to um, those of you who are out there who are wondering and wondering how to keep it real. Pick this up and you'll find out. Till next week on Dropping In, thank you for listening. Thank you so much for Dropping In. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 